welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Tackling Environmental Destruction and Financial Crime In this podcast, brought to you in the lead-up to COP26, Carol Van Randwyk, Chief Growth Officer at Themis, speaks to award-winning investigative journalist and environmental campaigner Claire Rucastle-Brown about her work in the nexus of environmental and financial crime in Southeast Asia. Hello everyone, and welcome to the latest Themis podcast. Many of you who know me will know that I'm passionate about the environment and how business can have a positive impact on the environment. Unfortunately, many have a detrimental impact. In some cases, there is an overlap between those businesses that adversely impact the environment, commit environmental crimes, and are involved in financial crimes. It is my great pleasure today to be discussing how these areas intersect. Over the next hour, we will consider the impacts on climate change of environmental crimes, such as illegal logging, the associated financial crimes, and the role financial institutions can play in tackling these crimes. In the coming weeks, much of the world will be focused on climate change in the run-up to COP26 being hosted by the UK. As a firm that specialises in fighting financial crime, Themis has a keen interest in the links between environmental and financial crimes. In the end, these crimes are driven by money, greed, and corruption. Today, I'm joined by award-winning investigative journalist and environmental campaigner, Claire Rucastle brown who has worked tirelessly to expose the devastation wrought on tropical rainforests in Southeast Asia, and in particular, Sarawak and Papua New Guinea, by either poor management practice and or illegal logging. Claire, I'm delighted to welcome you to this Themis podcast. Well, thank you so much for your interest. And, and if I can find people who are willing to listen, uh, particularly people who are in a position to do things about it, then I'm very happy to you know, communicate everything I can about the issues that I've been working with. Well, we look forward to hearing from you. And uh, if I could start uh, with, by asking you to tell us a bit about the Sarawak Report and how and why you founded the organization. Well, yes, I mean, um, I sort of came to it by a sort of confluence of, of life developments. Um, I had been born in Sarawak, which is in the Borneo jungle, the east, eastern part of Malaysia, and grown up there and had my sort of formative memories in that utterly beautiful part of the world that was still completely forested um, and inhabited by its indigenous peoples at that time. Um, and then, of course, uh, came back with uh, my family, uh, came to school and forged a career away from all of that in Chile, Chile, uh, UK. And um, I, I guess maybe the, the huge contrast of environmental uh, experiences, um, perhaps, you know, firm, firmed in my mind um, what a special place uh, this tropical rainforest had been. And, and I continued my interest. I became a, I became a London-based journalist. Um, and for many years, I was running around doing TV reports about totally London-centric issues. But at the back of my mind was this other world and my family continued to travel. So 
I had a combination of understanding how important the rainforest was, appreciating it, um, and also a very early knowledge about the destruction that was going on um, all over the world as my family moved from place to place um, during the 60s, 70s, 80s. We, we could see how the um, explosion of technology and consumerism and, um, you know, of, of, of just globalization had um, spurred the speed of resource extraction um, to, to an unprecedented, unbelievable pace. Um, and of course, um, I knew that this was going on in, in Borneo, one of the most valuable uh, remaining environments on the planet. Um, and then I, I actually stopped my work for, for a while, went freelance and found almost immediately that I had an invitation to go and speak at, a, at an environment and media conference um, in none other than Kuching Sarawak, where I was born. Um, what, a, what, you know, what an opportunity. Of course, I took up the offer um, and went back and spoke at that environment conference, which was rather a, a spurious event, I have to say, um, and, and started to make my contacts with local journalists and to refresh my understanding of what was going on, which was um, devastating deforestation in the third largest uh, rainforest of the world, the most biodiverse corner of the world, um, one of the key places where the uh, Darwinian uh, theory of evolution had actually been uh, pulled together. Um, it was a tragedy that I, 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 I realized was happening and, you know, I felt I just couldn't let it drop. So I kept looking into that. Well, thank you um, for, the, um, for giving us that uh, detailed explanation of your journey up to that particular point. And uh, you have uh, done some incredible investigative uh, work on what has been happening in Sarawak, and we'll come on to Papua New Guinea in a moment. But if I could just set the scene a little bit that our rainforests act as vital carbon sinks, uh, absorbing large quantities of carbon dioxide and mitigating some of the effects of global warming. And yet they're despairing at an alarming rate. Without action to change current trends, up to 1.7 million square kilometers of forest could be destroyed in these places by 2030. More than 80% of total projected forest losses globally. For those listeners in Europe, Imagine a forest stretching across Germany, France, Spain, and Portugal wiped out in just 20 years. As we approach the Climate Change Summit, COP26, this issue has never been more important. Claire, would you please paint a picture for our listeners of the extent of this devastation, how it impacts the environment and the surrounding communities which live in those unique, pristine environments? Well, yes, it's an interesting uh, analogy you drew of the of the huge swathe of Europe that has that has gone, and, and of course that was all at one point forested, um, but it took over a thousand years to deforest that area, um, which we did assiduously, of course, um, and and technology has meant that we've been able to do the same um, in in less than two decades um, on the on the you know jungle island of Borneo, and and what I saw when I went back to Borneo was um, the devastation, the fact that an, an enormous jungle, the most you know, valuable um, natural heritage, scientific uh, um, heritage and, and, and resource um, and, and great beauty obviously had been absolutely wiped out 
um, just to just to cash in on that timber. Um, and I saw the impact on uh, well, not only the wildlife, but but the people, the indigenous people who had for millennia lived off those forests. Um, this had all been done in the name of modernization and progress for them and development. Um, but of course, they got nothing out of it. Um, they they got no cash. Um, they got no um, they got no buildings. They got no hospitals. They got no schools, um, and they lost um, they lost their means of of survival. Their rivers were polluted. Uh, the entire area was uh, was replaced by the mass rolling out of cash crops, particularly palm oil plantations, now acacia, fast wood growing areas. But none of this none of this profit was uh, going to the local people, wasn't going into their development or progress or education. Um, and um, indeed, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the consequences, the environmental consequences of monocultures, I'm sure our audience will be well aware of. So this was about raising vast sums of cash uh, from vast areas of the planet for a tiny number of people. Uh, you know, I'm a journalist, and so that's how I approached it. Who's doing this and why? You know, what's the real reason behind this? And the real reason was, was greed, crime, corruption, poor governance. Uh, the reason this was going on was because of the corruptibility of the handful of people who had um, seized control of the government. And um, once they'd seized control, they were pouring money into their own pockets uh, in a symbiotic relationship that they very rapidly had developed. Um, I, I still try to work out who's in whose pocket here with the massive timber companies. Um, which were themselves family concerns, extended family concerns. There are six major timber companies in Sarawak, um, and they are, you know, interrelated mafia-style family companies um, who are symbiotically working with the politicians in that state. Um, and the richer that machine becomes, the more impossible it has been for any opposition to stand up against it. They, they control everything, they have all the money, um, and they just steamroll a black male bribe, control all the instruments of state, and I might say come down very heavily on the media. Now I'm trying to sort of give you, um, you know, that overview, uh, so the helplessness of many countries in the world who up um, in that kind of engine of, of state capture effectively um, by powerful, powerful but limited family interests uh, such as happened in Sarawak. And, you know, none of the journalists who are filling me in on all this and telling me about the billionaire family, the Tide family who had controlled Sarawak for decades, um, could write about it themselves. Um, because, you know, Malaysia has uh, appallingly oppressive media laws that can be utilized against, um, against journalists. They can be thrown into jail under all sorts of, um, you know, crimes. Um, and in fact, I've been charged with most of them by now. Um, and so um, there was a role I could see for me, which as a foreign journalist, utilizing the internet, I could get to work on assistance. Uh, so that's what I did. I set up a blog and I started writing about what was going on and directly challenging uh, the wealth, the unexplicable wealth 
of these politicians who were supposed to be on fixed government salaries, but who yet um, I was able to trace owned vast properties in the advanced economies, um, you know, in, in Britain, um, in, in, in the United States, Australia, uh, Canada, um, you know, uh, the, the Tide family have huge properties, as do their symbiotic uh, um, cousins, the, the timber companies companies that, that fund their government. Um, so, so I took up a direct stand against these, uh, these people, and that's been the work I've, I've been doing. Um, and then moving on to Papua New Guinea, which you mentioned, um, having exposed Tide Mahmood in the way I did, and in fact, very satisfactorily, actually, it, it caused him immense political problems when at last a, um, you know, actually a media organization was able to stand up and speak the truth against uh, Taib. Um, he started to lose at least the urban vote, uh, just left. Um, people started to realize why their country was as it was and why Taib was so rich. It was because he had stolen and plundered from the country and I was saying it and he wasn't daring to sue me for it. Um, and so that lost him his job in the end. Uh, the Federal Prime Minister of Malaysia um, kicked him upstairs and made him governor and took his hands off the levers of government. So I could see that, you know, with a free move, uh, press, you can you can make movement on this. And, 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 you know, I was I was getting the message out to other media and so forth by just carrying on talking about this. Um, moving to Papua New Guinea, um, what these companies have done have become global concerns for all of us. Uh, the Sarawak Six companies are amongst the biggest timber companies globally. They made an absolute fortune not making a profit in Sarawak. They, they, they cashed in a rainforest and then claimed that it couldn't be taxed because, um, you know, they, 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 you know they, they made no profit. They, they were doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, apparently. So no money went back into the state. No money went into Malaysia. All of this profit was exported out through the offshore system and into further logging all over Southeast Asia, the Solomon Islands have been raised by these same cartels of Malaysian companies and they're into Papua New Guinea, um, which is a, which I, I, we can talk about in a second. It was a, a, just an appalling example of state capture by a neo-colonialist uh, enterprise uh, run by uh, resource grabbing big business. But they're also in the Congo, they're in they're in the Amazon, they're in, um, you know, they're, they're in uh, Siberia, China, um, and they're exporting to us. So, so, so on this question of, of, you know, what's happening in places like Papua New Guinea, um, you see, you know, I, I went there and filmed there in 2019. And, and, and in the course of a couple of weeks, I just absolutely saw laid out before me, uh, what had a reproduction of what had happened in Sarawak. They went in with a huge amount of money into a remote uh, place which had become independent but still had very weak governance, uh, very weak institutions, a very under-aware population of remote, isolated people with very traditional backgrounds and lives. And, and, and these logging companies came in and told the, the, the political leadership that they could make them individually fabulously rich and that's what we saw they, they bought up um, all the decision making um, uh, key people that they needed or had them replaced if necessary uh, both at a local level uh, going in and um, uh, perverting the way that uh, local groups and local councils who could give licenses um, and give permissions for logging they, they would go in they would buy up the few crucial people um, they would they would 
promise massive amounts of money. They would promise to bring roads and development and schools. Um, and then, you know, having got the signature on the piece of paper, um, they then steamroller in with their massive logging uh, equipment and they strip the area and they leave uh, the locals with absolutely nothing. Um, I then went on and, and looked at how basically uh, the only, you know, the only thing that these local people can get out of the awful situation is that they're in is to act as indentured stroke slave labor, as they called it on the subsequent palm oil plantations that these timber companies then roll out. They're now plantation companies as well. Um, of course, they're into everything now, but um, they're rolling out hundreds of thousands of acres of palm oil um, in Papua New Guinea, where the beautiful forests used to exist. Um, and that's the only living left for the indigenous people is to work for penurious amounts of money um, on those palm oil plantations. And I went and saw the situation. I think we're going to talk about, I'm sure you're going to ask about, um, you know, slave labor and, and human trafficking. This is one of the most penurious examples I've ever come across in my reporting career of a, of a nation effectively enslaved um, in these plantations. Um, it, you, you could be back on the sugar islands of the 18th century, frankly, um, when you visit Papua New Guinea. That, that is um, quite a horrific description of what has happened to the absolutely unique rainforests in Sarawak and Papua New Guinea. And you mentioned their um, slave, slavery and uh, indentured uh, individuals, the communities who were free uh, previously, who <clears throat> relied on the local environment for their livelihood as, as well as for their own resources um, and are now no longer able to rely on that. Um, I'd looked at your 2019 film reporting on the activities of the logging companies in Papua New Guinea, and it was uh, horrific to see the lack of protection that the individuals uh, received for conducting the um, logging activities as well as um, working on the plantations, dealing with pesticides and other activities that they have to. Um, could you describe a little bit more about your understanding, what you saw, and to what extent is it um, across the whole area, the, the country that has been deforested, rather than just a small area? Does it apply to all the um, forests that have been denuded of their original trees and vegetation. Yes, I mean, I, I crisscrossed uh, quite a few different communities in different parts of Papua New Guinea during that one trip. Um, and, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not just a monoculture, it's, it's a single outcome, you know, for all the people who've been caught up, they're in the same, you know, horrible um, situation. So there's no, there's no variety in what it's done to the, the indigenous people of Papua New Guinea. They all describe themselves to me as slaves in their own land. That's how they feel. They feel they've been invaded by big cap, uh, capital, which has captured their decision makers, um, their lawmakers, um, has suborned and corrupted uh, the people who are supposed to be looking after their interests have lied to them um, and they are left um, 
I mean, I went up and visited some of these very remote camps um, and, you know, families are living in the most squalid and disgusting conditions um, that have been provided for them by these, um, uh, these companies, you know, who have so much wealth. Um, and actually, at the time I went in 2019, there had been a drastic downturn at that time in the palm oil market. So that it was a really interesting example, actually, of how these these companies operate because suddenly they weren't making money out of oil palm so they just laid everybody off <laughs> so um, at the time i went there they'd laid off in some of the areas i visited 90 percent of the workforce just like that um, and you know i mean i hope that uh you know that subsequently if the market picked up some of those people may have been given some jobs back but at that time they were just left with nothing trying to find their way home to get back to their villages uh, where they might hope to be able to grow potatoes and yam to survive again but being given no payoff money you know no basic uh, care or, or, or you know um, commitment at all now the remaining people that I, I visited in the camp as I say were living in squalor and receiving the most ludicrous I mean ludicrously low sums of money for their labor um, I remember being incredibly touched um, by um, some of the conditions I mean you know uh, no obviously no running water they were having to drink from what they could capture from the rain coming off the roof um, they had a polluted stream you know down by the facilities no uh, no proper you know washing or, or toilet facilities and they had a sort of roofless um uh wallless church they're very religious they're they're they're, they're um they're christians in papua new guinea um and so they, they, they this was the center of their of their um of their little encampment was the church that they were only allowed off one day a week on sunday and they would spend a lot of that time in this dilapidated church um and um, the rest of the time they would be working. There was no school. So the kids that they were having together in these, they, they would be running around them while they worked on the plantation and then growing up to help their parents. This was not progress and development that was that was promised. Um, and, um, you know, I went to other areas where, you know, um, the workmen were, would tell me how hard they had to work. And, you know, they would then have to carry these heavy burdens these heavy branches of fruit for you know up to a mile uh up a road um in these plantations when you know the pickup truck might come and get them it really just total disdain um treated as subhumans um and 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 in this day and age just just outrageous that companies should be able to get away with it um you know over an entire country like papua new guinea and what is their means of redress? What what are the, their local uh, political representatives doing to to help them and uh, seek uh, from the logging companies um, their commitment to the legal agreements that they've signed to um, in support of their activities? Because I'm assuming, and this is from your 2019 film you indicated that the logging companies had signed agreements with the local community um, and the community elders and leaders, but uh, there, there must be some form of redress so that they can um, get their livelihoods back. 
Well, I put my investigative hat on, obviously, as a journalist confronted with this situation. Um, those agreements with community leaders turn out to be highly suspect if you um, take the slightest look at them. And time and again, you know, um, what these logging companies come in, come in and do is they come in, they splash a bit of money and they buy up, you know, one or two people within the community um, who then help them deceive the rest of the community or they split the community or they'll get signatures under pretenses of something else or they'll just forge signatures. They will set people up as um, representatives of the community when they're not. Um, you know, in fact, I ended up um, interviewing quite a lot of people, as you'd have seen in that film, um, who admitted that they'd played that role um, and regretted it. Um, against their own communities, because at the time they'd con themselves, I suppose, that they were doing the right thing by bringing in the loggers. But then when they saw the consequences, they admitted it, they regretted it, um, and, and they admitted that their, you know, their communities, often who can't read or write, um, you know, had been... Uh, you know, conned. I, I mean, I had one example where a, a community representative had been encouraged to sign a sign a document. He'd asked for, to have his own lawyer, um, and the timber company had absolutely refused to allow him a lawyer, and had actually sort of threatened that if they got a lawyer, um, then they would uh, they would they would drop the deal, and that the, all the promised money that never came anyway wouldn't come. Um, so there's not really a tactic that they they won't um, descend to, um, and and in, in another case, um, you know, in other cases, uh, police would arrive at night um, in, a, in a village with guns and require that forms be signed, forms which were then, um, you know, used as, as signed consent for their, uh, for their forests to be logged. Um, uh, other, other examples are where um, a huge 300,000 hectare plantation, um, well, logging first and then plantation exists in the Vanamo area of, of, of Papua New Guinea. Um, and that was signed over by supposedly a community agreement. Um, but uh, when I looked into it, it turned out that what had happened was that community leaders had been um, encouraged by a local MP uh, to sign a form that they understood would enable him to advocate on their behalf uh, to to get uh, you know to, to get the best opportunities uh, from their um, from 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 these loggers who are wanting to come in. Um, of course, the people who gave that permission were only of limited uh, authority to do so anyway. But what they it took them a year before they realised what they'd actually signed was a power of attorney, uh, which they gave to their MP that uh, enabled him to act on behalf of the entire community. Um, and then um, mysteriously, um, the entire rights to the area's logging was then signed over to an offshore company um, who we don't know owned. <laughs> we don't know who owned the offshore company, but that offshore company then came in and logged the whole area. Um, I challenged the local MP, um, who was quite a smooth character actually, um, he said he'd do me an interview in an hour's time. He just needed to get home and freshen up. I'm still chasing him. <laughs> he didn't come to the rendezvous to do the interview. Um, so it, it's all very simple trickery. And if you've got a bag of money and you can arrive by helicopter and you can afford to pay the police to act on your behalf, really local remote communities, they don't have a chance to stand up to this kind of trickery, armed with lawyers, armed with bought 
political representatives. Um, but if you still have trouble, if the community gets upset and maybe starts to um, hold placards and protest, um, you know, there are resources and, and, and you will have seen from my film how in community after community, they talked about how they are brought under control by the police who work for the logging companies. They have uh, littered um, Papua New Guinea with shipping containers from the ships that come in and out taking the goods. And, and, and just about every village has one of these containers, which is an airless, windowless um, sort of box of metal. And anyone who protests uh, gets marched in there, locked in there for several days to uh, ruminate um, on protest. Um, it, it, it's, it's beyond belief. And um, that is a horrific uh, description of the uh, circumstances in which uh, they, uh, they live and how the logging companies uh, deal with the um, local communities and their representatives, and as well with those organisations who are meant to protect them. <clears throat> and from your investigations, uh, what have you been able to, do, to identify in terms of discover as to the backlash or anything or any support that's coming from um, the uh, political representatives uh, in the country or even from church com uh, communities? I ended up speaking to the archbishop for the area in one of these uh, um, in one of these communities. Uh, he, he was there in his wonderful archbishopic robes. I went to his uh, residence at Pokopo and um, he he expressed his despair to me. He didn't know what to do. Um, what he'd been trying to do, having decided, you know, everything was hopeless, he had tried to act as an intermediary negotiating between the palm oil companies and the local residents on the basis of have some heart. You know, surely you have decency, uh, you know, please, you know, let's have a newly reconstructed contract whereby they accept what's happened to them. They accept you've taken the land, but please give them something back. And he was trying to get uh, the two sides to sign this. And I said to him, how can you imagine, how can you put your faith in any goodness in these companies who care just about cash, who have already shown how ruthless they are? And he said, well, I feel we have no choice. And I said to him, look, I said, what you're asking uh, the local community to do is to legitimize by signing this agreement that to legitimize what these logging companies are doing. And then they have to hope um, that the logging companies are going to fulfill their promises this time, whereas before they never did. Um, but they lose their, their legal um, you know, they lose their legal weapon, which was that in the past they had not legitimized it. They had not agreed to these plantations. So actually, with the best one in the world, you could be putting them in a worse situation. You could be tying them up legally. And that archbishop looked at me and he said, please, please, can people come and help us? We need help here in Papua New Guinea. And he looked at me. He asked me to help. He asked me to find people to help. And, and that's, you know. That's why I'm talking to you and to others, anyone who will listen. Yeah. And um, before we go on, because I have a multitude of uh, questions uh, related to what you do. So if people do want to help, um, where do they go to? How do they get in touch with you or to the, um, the organisations in Papua New Guinea that are looking to help the local communities? Well, I think, I think what I'm trying, uh, you know, my first 
sort of point on this is we have to revisit how we and it ties in with what you do we have to revisit how we um uh, consider what's happening to the environment and the problem we have with climate change. We have to recontextualize it um, in, in what in the form that I think you know explains why this is going on. This is this is about criminal resource gathering by criminal mafia companies, and we need to identify those criminals and stand up to them and go after them um, and hold them to account and to demand certain standards of behavior. Um, you know, you mentioned your phrase illegal logging. Um, it, it's a misleading phrase because if you have a, a country where state capture has taken place, where the, the, um, where the government is corrupted, as is the case in all these situations, um, then what's legal and what isn't? So we have to go after the criminals, um, identify them, admit that, it, that this is crim, crim, crime that we're dealing with, um, and um, and proceed from there. I'm I'm going to be holding uh, just one um, event at COP. Um, I have a small NGO which is really just a platform uh, for you know uh, what I and others who are, who are working in this area are seeking to communicate, um, and we're going to um, have on that platform uh, 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 Gary Juffer, who is um, a governor of one of the provinces of um, Papua New Guinea, um, and he. Um, he started as a customs officer and he saw the extraction from grassroots level from his country and, and how it affected his people, how they were stripped of everything and how not a penny of tax was paid. And so that's what put him on his political path. And he has over the years championed his people and he has now uh, become governor and there has been a change of government uh, there has been so much unrest amongst the people of Papua against these foreign Malaysian companies that um, there is now a, a government that is committed to, to attempting to reform matters and and, and the government uh, now has supported Gary Jaffa in setting up a 300,000 hectare um, conservation zone in the province that he controls, Oro province, um, with, and where he has uh, severed and disbanded and uh, cancelled all the uh, logging licenses um, that were due to cut down that area. Now he's up against the, uh, the companies that are very unhappy about that and who will be fighting back in all the ways they know best how to, with enormous resources, with lawyers, with billions at their disposal, with uh, you know, um, violent methods at their disposal, um, bribery and blackmail at their disposal. So he's fighting the front line and he'll be coming and explaining just what a challenge that is at, at COP in Glasgow in, in, in November, um, together with the opposition leader of um, Malaysia, who actually just earlier today confirmed that he, he will come and join that, that, that uh, platform. Um, speaking as a reformer in Malaysia who has fought the timber corruption in Malaysia, um, he did 10 years in jail in uh, for standing up against corruption, um, is currently out and has the same companies, has been up against the same companies over the last few weeks, trying to stop them, pulling out the last bits of jungle, um, using the establishment with which they are in cahoots uh, to do so in, back in Malaysia. So these two men are from the front line on this and they will be appealing to the international community um, as recipients of these uh, goods 
as the um, facilitators through the offshore system, through the international finance system of this illegal logging. Um, so to find solutions before these valuable areas are finally wiped out on the planet to all our detriment. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really important that uh, uh, local people start to stand up and uh, address the companies that are uh, creating such devastation to their, to their homeland. You mentioned earlier about shell companies and uh, given the natural resources that have been depleted from the uh, country, uh, the logs, uh, the, all the wood that has been taken offshore is extremely valuable. Uh, and for me, having been in finance before joining Themis, one would have expected uh, a lot of uh, taxes to have been paid to the uh, government and for them to set up a sovereign wealth fund type of fund which would then be able to support the, um, the local people. Um, so this is really a, a fund for future generations. Uh, it doesn't seem to have happened, um, other than through what you uh, mentioned earlier, bribery and corruption. What, what has been preventing the generation of such a future fund for, um, for the local people of Papua New Guinea? Well, if you want to know who the richest families in the world are, take a look at these timber barons and their political allies. Um, there's a joke that was used to be made um, uh, that, that apparently Taib Mahmood used to feel very angry as the, um, uh, as the chief minister of, of a poxy little uh, state in Malaysia, i.e. Sarawak, that um, the Sultan of Brunei was considered the richest man in the world. Uh, because, of course, he knew he was far richer than the Sultan of Brunei, but, but couldn't advertise the fact. Uh, the Tide family are multiple billionaires. Um, the the Yor family, the Chong families, of the, these are the families that are behind Sam Ling and Rimbunan Hijau, two of the bigger timber companies, are multi-multi-billionaires. Um, because they are the recipients, they are the sovereign funds. Um, that received all the money that should have been uh, invested into sustainable development and, and modernization and to improving people's lives in these countries. It's a straight theft. That is uh, something I'm sure for uh, future investigations and uh, for um, uh, the information to come to light as to how they've been able to extract those sorts of funds uh, for their own personal use. But um, more importantly... Well, I think it's, uh, just, just to jump in, I, I, I think we know, um, you know, they, they've been legitimised by their home government, thereby making it possible for a raft of Western banks to service them. Um, they have all the money has been transfer priced through places like uh, Singapore, uh, and Hong Kong so that they sell to themselves and then sell on to us. Um, off, the, the money all goes through offshore concerns um, that are politely run by, you know, elegant Brits um, who act as their lawyers and tax advisors and investment um, and business managers. Um, the whole thing has been facilitated by professional, the professional classes of Britain and America and Switzerland, frankly, um, including our bankers. That's how it 
it's been done. And, and I'm naming names because actually this has all been proven as well. I, I no longer live in fear of a serious lawsuit from Taib Mahmood, Samling or Rimbanan Hijau, because it's all documented, it's all on record um, that they have acted in this criminal way. Um, they just shrug their shoulders and move on. So given that all this information is in the public domain, um, what could individuals or even the financial community do to restrict um, the further flow of wealth to these organizations? But also uh, we, um, we know that there are all these tax structures uh, that have been set up, shell companies, but there must be um, a way in which organizations can see, or banks particularly who facilitate the uh, flow of um, uh, money from one organization to another to different parts of the world that they get, that they could be doing to highlight and stop this well at some point we're going to have to tackle offshore um, we should have tackled it back in the 80s um, it's now become an, a, a sort of gross addiction um, uh, you know and and um, but 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 vast swathes of the global economy goes through these offshore islands that are largely managed by Britain. And um, as a result, this criminality goes undetected. And uh, we've seen the Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers. Um, and, you know, what you could, you know, I mean, they are, they, they shed light on what, what, what was obvious um, and deductible, which is that these instruments are being used to hide criminal capital and tax evading capital. And, um, you know, I, interestingly, I took rather than, you know, leaks from 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 offshore concerns, I did take my um, my investigations a, a step further, having sort of exposed Tide Mahmood. And then I exposed the corruption of the next door states minister as well, who was also um, getting hundreds of millions in kickbacks from uh, logging companies to destroy Saba. Um, I started to look at how money was being stolen from Malaysia um, and through the offshore system, uh, namely the 1MDB scandal. Um, and, um, you know, I, I got to work on that and was able to expose um, through traditional journalistic methods and leaks and through whistleblowers, how in that particular one example, six billion was stolen uh, by the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Taib Mahmood's boss in effect, um, uh, for his own purposes and funneled through the offshore system um, and back into his bank account in Malaysia to fun finance his um, incredibly lavish lifestyle, the, um, the insatiable demand of his wife for Hermes handbags and diamonds to the cock tune of hundreds of millions of dollars and indeed of course uh, you know a whole lot of Hollywood investments in movies like Wolf of Wall Street and it became a major scandal but but what what I what I achieved in the process of that was a, a sort of cross-section of how the offshore system works the theft in the poorly governed corrupt country being funneled through these offshore companies through a um, number of banks. I mean, leading the leading bank in the um, 1MDB scandal was Goldman Sachs, who have had to pay billions in fines for their, for their blatant criminal and corrupt behavior in this, turning a blind eye to obvious theft. And in fact, their senior South East Asia executive taking a hundred million in a uh, hundred million dollars yes, in kickbacks. So, um, you know, this, this is blatant corruption in our financial systems that they usually get away with these banks 
because there is so little transparency in what's going on. Um, and, and, you know, so we went through from, from the theft through to the, the you know, the, the expenditures, the, the super yachts, the, the, the mansions in Hollywood, the movies, the lavish lifestyles. It's all there. We know it's going on and our governments need to get together and tackle it. Claire, we're, we're coming up close to the um, end of uh, time and I really appreciate your, uh, your uh, uh, description and the explanation of everything that you've uncovered and, and definitely showing the links between um, environmental devastation, environmental crimes, financial crimes and social crimes as well because of the impact that um, all this has on local communities and people and indigenous communities who rely so much on their local environment for their livelihoods and survival. Um, what can our listeners do to help combat the activities of these companies and, uh, the, and in particular where the, can they find out more about their activities and what, what they're doing to uh, effectively cut off the uh, demand for their product? I think we've got to stop turning a blind eye. I mean, uh, you know, there's been a collective blind eye turned and, and it begins with politics. Um, you know, um, regulators are not being pressured by the people who hire them, the governments who hire them to do their jobs. Um, I, you know, I, I tipped off numerous regulators um, about what was going on in Malaysia and 1MDB. I luckily, finally, given there was such a huge sum of money stolen and it went through high profile, um, uh, you know, uh, places in the United States, I, I finally was able um, to get the attention of the FBI and the, and the Department of Justice, um, who, who, who then took the action that enabled the 1MDB scandal to be, to be um, to be proven, to be taken to court and for the money to be seized. Um, we're not, but that's not happening. That's not happening in Britain. That's not happening in Switzerland. Um, banks are not reporting. Uh, if they do report, nothing's done. We, we, have, to, we have to demand um, as a population that our governments um, take regulation seriously and deal with crime seriously, because actually it doesn't benefit nearly everybody. It, it only benefits a handful of people who then subsidize um, politicians without a doubt and, and subsidize political parties in our in our supposedly more law abiding countries um, into not tackling these glaring failings. And as a result, we're losing, you know, we're losing the diversity of our planet. Our climate's going haywire. And, you know, we're not benefiting. The average person does not benefit either in Papua New Guinea or here from rampant corruption. We're coming under the heel of a handful of terrifyingly rich people who are criminal, who have stolen massive resources, who have not paid a been in tax on it and who are now starting to wage terrifying levels of influence over political parties and governments in our country because they're wealthier than many countries these these individuals and these companies so we need to have an awareness in our you know in in us in our own societies of, of the problems we face and the dangers that that presents to nearly everybody Claire Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights and experiences with us. Um, it has been really interesting and you've just touched the tip of the iceberg, first, first of all, of what you've uncovered. Um, I would strongly recommend people to look at your 2019 uh, film 
on the activities of the logging companies in Papua New Guinea. It's all available on uh, uh, YouTube and uh, read all your um, interesting articles as well. But uh, the, I think uh, everybody can do their bit by, first of all, inquiring where the wood that they have in their own products, in their, let's say, wonderful teak uh, furniture that they buy and, their, uh, and other uh, wood-based uh, products that they purchase and find out the supply chains. Where is everything coming from? And also, um, obviously, our uh, bankers and financial um, and the financial system to be a little bit more um, transparent and investigative of um, of the financial flows that are going through their systems. So thank you very much once again, and really appreciate the time that um, you've given to us and to our listeners in uh, explaining what's going on in Sarawak and Papua New Guinea. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for lending your ear. <laughs> and, 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 and I hope, I hope uh, you will act um, on your commitment. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.